Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, today I'm kind of thinking of our Sunday school lesson, which was from Galatians 5:13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, and use your freedom then not to be re-enslaved, but to be free. But let's look also at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, in which we understand how liberty is lost, and of course we'll look at how it's gained through Christ. But Genesis 3, 1 to 5, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We're not quite clear or sure about the providence of these verses, but Adam and Eve might simply be translated as woman and man. And their transgression, of course, takes on a universal aspect. We can see it unfolding continually in history. In fact, Paul will write Romans 7 very much in this idea that in himself is the continuation then of the fall of Adam. And there is a profound freedom and the possibility for good and evil uh, in the story that then introduces death. If we think of illustrating this, you know, 300 years of research into physics revealed in just the past century that the physical universe is relative to an observer. This is Einstein's theory of relativity. That there is an uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, or the sense in which the universe is not a determinate structure, but is open or impacted by observation. That is, human freedom is built into the universe. The universe is not a machine, it's not a deterministic system, and the laws of the universe are open, pointing to even an atomic freedom. And the indication is that there is an incompleteness to the atomic world, and that there's room, obviously, for human manipulation, but also divine care. We can see that there is a space, there's room, that God indeed does hold all things together. And this seems to be indicated in the very structure of the universe. That is, the explanation is not within the atomic physics. On the other hand, the culmination of 300 years of physics and the discovery of relativity and quantum mechanics 
It resulted in the atomic bomb. And today, August 6th, is the memorial day of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. We recently saw the film about Robert Oppenheimer, who is the father of the atomic bomb. And he oversaw the production of its invention in New Mexico. Uh, I've spent time in New Mexico. I had a horse. I often rode in New Mexico. He had horses as a boy. He chooses that site because it was so beautiful and desolate. The name of the book about him is the American Prometheus. And of course, Prometheus is the god who took fire from the sun and introduced civilization. And actually, Prometheus, in that he would civilize man, I think maybe that's the wrong image. I happen to be reading Sergei Bolgakov, and he describes Prometheus symbolizes the struggle with metaphysical petite bourgeois mediocrity. I have to say, Bolgakov was a former Marxist. What he means by petite bourgeois is someone who is a conservative, unimaginative. This is precisely what Prometheus is not. Those who think Prometheus is just this self-satisfaction with the world. He misses the principle, Bolgakov says, of the kingdom of God. He misses the higher principle. The usual Luciferian petite bourgeois interpretation of this symbol reduces it to the level of a struggle for the imminent empirical values of this world. Whereas it actually summons man to a higher vocation. What he's saying is the myth about Prometheus is actually a kind of picture of the the kingdom of God. It is this petite bourgeois conventionalism or conservatism. this, This spirit that perpetuates good and evil in their interdependence as the sole path of ascent. That is, we imagine that through the world we can ascend to the gods or to the spirit of God. Adam and Eve imagined through the fruit of the tree they could be like God. So too we continue to imagine that in and through the world we can attain to deity. Rather than Prometheus, maybe he's more like the American Adam. The knowledge of the good, of God's good creation, is tied by Oppenheimer and his generation of physicists to a kind of conventional evil, the worst sort of conventional evil. Instead of imagining total freedom, which is one of the implications of high-energy physics, Oppenheimer and his generation pick up where Cain left off. Using the most fundamental elements of the world, they bludgeon their brothers to death. They create a weapon of mass destruction. Instead of an enlightened, intelligent freedom, what we get is completely devoid of this freedom, in the words of Bogokov. In man is born the thought that through the elements of the world, He is capable of ascending to the highest levels of spiritual life and knowledge. This is the fall of man. His consciousness of his spirituality, in other words, has grown dim. In that he's gotten caught up in the flesh, in the language of Galatians. 
having penetrated the depths of the knowledge of good and evil, he descends into the world, imagining he's ascending to deity. And this is the deception of evil. This is the deception of Satan. It was a grandiose ontological provocation in the words of Bogokov, which perverted the correct relationship between the constituent parts of man's being. And from this follow the logic, the spiritual consequences, the fatal results of all creation, that death entered in. In man is born the thought that through the elements of the world, I'm saying it again, he can ascend to spiritual insight. I think that's human failure. The descent into the elemental particles in the case of high energy physics, the stuff of the universe. While it provided insight, it also demonstrated instability, the possibility of splitting, disrupting, exploding, a kind of mass death. That is, we can interfere with the world at its atomic level. Isn't that what the story of Genesis indicates? But what we find is not ascent into the spiritual. And that's why this film is so disturbing. Here's one of the brightest people, perhaps, in the world, in the United States, certainly in regard to atomic physics, who is so morally and spiritually bankrupt. We find there is indeed a gap in the physical universe. The observer is reflected in the observation. As the experimenter has to take account of himself in the experiment. But of course this also introduces the possibility of great evil, of implosion. And so the great insight into physics, which is tied, you know, this is most modern innovations, are tied to these discoveries in physics. But of course, it's also tied to the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the possibility of world destruction. The battle between good and evil, their necessary mutual implication, I think are captured in Oppenheimer like they are in Adam, maybe in every man. He's torn between the depth of insight into the good which is just exciting in and of itself. The recognition that he has the power of the sun, atomic power, but then also the power to become the destroyer of the world. And so the image of the mushroom cloud over El Magordo and then duplicated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I don't know if you've seen the images of the skin melting off victims in Hiroshima. People are still dying. Every year the, the count goes up. And actually in New Mexico, people are still dying of the radiation poisoning that fell from the atomic blast there. And so man, Adam, has the capacity for depth of insight. But this capacity for truth comes with the simultaneous capacity for death, for destruction. Genesis 1.28, God called man to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and to have dominion. To be the ruler in a sense or to be the caretaker. But with this power to dominate and manipulate arises the power not only of good but of profound evil. 
The universe is such that humans can feed into it. We can manipulate it. We can control it. But of course, we all know we can destroy it. At the same time, we recognize that God holds all things together. We also recognize he allows for free will humans to have dominion. The universe groans, Paul says, under the futility of human sin. And where God brings forth the universe out of the nothingness of creation ex nihilo, the Big Bang, we recognize humans can reverse the process, calling upon death and nothingness. Man has the power to return the world from whence it came. The power for death, the power of the devil shared with man is the power to disrupt, to block, to subvert, to destroy. And good and evil then arise together in humans. They're tied together. Let's look at a passage momentarily that describes this in satanic terms, but also in human terms. In Ezekiel 28, the depth of the knowledge of the good in modern physics, but in all of humanity, comes with a counter capacity for evil. But this good and evil working together, this has always been characteristic of the human race. Ezekiel 28.2 Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. By your wisdom and understanding you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13 you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed cherub. I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence. And in your midst you sinned, and so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I brought fire from out of your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. Perfection and evil, all here in one story. Violence and pride wealth and power. They come together in the good and the evil. And the human and the demonic in this passage kind of meld together. We're not sure. You know, the king of Tyre clearly has abused his dominion. But then, as the verse continues, we're clearly not talking about the king of Tyre anymore. But he takes on the look of the devil himself. And so two possibilities, two paths of life exists from the very beginning. The first path, direct acceptance of God's lordship, increasing conformity to God's will, 
and prior to or outside the opposition between good and evil, outside their collision and antagonism. And the second path is the path of this guardian cherub, the king of Tyre, the path of Adam. It's the appearance in man of antagonism, of struggle. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will rescue me? Human creativity brings with it the power of uncreation and destruction. From out of the stones of fire, the world may be lit up with the glory of God or with its destruction. Luciferism has at its foundation, it's really not an accident, it's not caprice, but it's the very character of the creatureliness of a kind of self-determination. This is God's gift, this freedom given to human beings, but it can be misused, it can be stolen, and that's the picture in Ezekiel, a kind of self-deifying creation. The lust for power of the prince of this world is a direct expression of this reality, this self-deifying creation. You know, the picture here from the guardian angel of the world. Well, we pass from that to Satan. He's transformed into the prince of this world who wants to gain possession of it. He becomes a conquering predator governed not by love but by envy and the lust for power not by truth but by falsehood jesus says the devil was a murderer from the beginning in john 8 not in the truth because there is no truth in him satan's relation to the world is based upon his all-devouring egotism subjectivism in this sense satanism is an adventure in which we know the end is nothing but we can see its signs in the murder and destructiveness it produces. Maybe in atomic holocaust. We glimpse the fact that not only is a Satan, as Jesus says, a murderer of men, but he's also a murderer of the world. And to be sure, he does not have the power to destroy the world. Scripture tells us it rests upon an unshakable foundation and will not be moved. But we know that mankind has this resource of the knowledge of good and evil. That the good may be tied to the evil and the evil may be used and energized by the good. Evil presents itself before man in the guise as it did of the serpent of the natural world. You know, Adam would converse with the world. The beginning of evil in man is therefore, it's not revolt so much or usurpation, it's actually a kind of misunderstanding, a naivete, an ignorance. As Bulgakov puts it, our progenitors did not know how to recognize or to terminate the poisonous conversation with the serpent. I believe we're still in that dialogue. The serpent arises from the earth and speaks and returns to the earth the earth seems to speak there is a gullibility and curiosity. The knowledge of good and evil continues to raise its head. This earth which had contained the possibility of becoming God's garden through Adam's creative obedience. He was to keep it and dress it. Now because of his disobedience it has become a meager land. As Genesis 3, 17 to 8 
describes it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you as you till the ground. The thorn of global warming. The thistle of atomic explosion threatens to choke all life out of the world. From the earth, in Romans 8, are emitted the moans of futility, the groanings of death. For the creation was subjected, Paul says, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God. Here is universal redemption. Here is the liberty of the cosmos. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so two things come together in Paul's description. Certainly the reality of death and evil. But the final word is the liberating work of Christ. Real, concrete freedom, modal freedom can be greater in magnitude. It can be more or less complete. It can increase, certainly it can decrease. It can ascend, but certainly it can descend. But the picture in 2 Corinthians is the picture of the children of God and the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this passage. 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6. to And Paul here, like he is in Galatians, is comparing the freedom that we have in Christ to the law. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Concrete freedom is a positive power and force in Christ, in which we are no longer beholding ourselves in the mirror of the world but are transformed into the image of God through the likeness of gazing into his word the mirror of the word in Paul's description displaces the mirror of the elemental forces of the world and instead of being slaves to the world we can take our proper place as its caretaker Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.